Hello and welcome to Hero with a Thousand Potions, a gaming podcast where two 30-something gamers examine the storytelling and gameplay of popular niche RPGs. It's like a book club where a giant glowing gash in your chest ain't no reason not to smoke one last cigarette. This is season one and we're talking about Xenoblade Chronicles Definitive Edition. Hey, I nailed it that time. My name is Tyler and I'm joined by my friend Nate. You're invited to join us on this adventure by playing Xenoblade alongside these episodes where we explore Xenoblade chapter by chapter. This episode... We're taking it to the end, Nate. We're finishing Xenoblade Chronicles. And I can die in peace, finally. Nate, you've been sick lately. Yeah, I've been sick since the 18th of November, so we're, we're at like two and a half weeks now. Oh. It's wonderful. The doctors say that this like flu that's going around, because people were quarantining the last few years, they weren't getting the flu. And uh, the strain is just like destroying everyone. Yeah, I can believe it. So I'm excited to be here, but I'm uh, tempering my voice and, and holding back to not aggravate my throat. So if it sounds like I'm like sad or something, I'm not. I'm just, this is the way it is and the way it has been for quite a while. Yeah, I've been sick too. I About the time when I wrapped up having the flu, you got it. And then I had, as I mentioned in the last episode of the Xenoblade series, I had covid before that and so we've just been unwell lately looking forward to get back in the saddle here yeah and i've been playing games on the side trying to keep the energy going keep the dream alive posted some videos on youtube stream on twitch but our schedules just have not aligned very well lately either due to everything going on in life Mm -hmm. so i'm i'm pumped to be here let's let's get this done i'm pumped to be here too oh my goodness okay so this is part three of three of the final chapter of xenoblade chronicles recall that the first part was like the first handful of scenes right before we're cut loose to go investigate all the end game open world content part two was the end game open world content and here we are at part three of three headed into prison island the final dungeon of the game final boss and we're gonna talk about the epilogue which was really really interesting and i kind of didn't expect it but we're gonna get right into it here it's getting a little xenosaga y but we'll get to it we'll get to it shit should i just go right in yeah go for it go for it all right so the gang arrives at prison island now we accessed it through how do we do it how do we even get there the portal in the heart oh my goodness we got there through the portal in the heart it takes us into the bionis head and because that's where prison island sank into once it activated and did the telethia kill switch thing over in the Aerith Sea, and then it sank down into the head. We teleport to the head, and we're at Prison Island. We're kind of at the foot of, at the opposite end of that large dramatic bridge. It's the big black volcanic rock shard of a zone here. But here we are in the interior of the Bionis head, and it's really hollow around here. So yeah, we're gonna be walking through Prison Island and all of its halls and galleries and everything else that's there. But the environment around us, like the skybox, is just empty. It's full of burnt oil orange and yellow and red clouds it kind of feels like twilight it feels like the end of the world and and i think that's appropriate when we're walking into the final dungeon but if you ever asked yourself what you thought the interior of bionis's head looked like i probably wouldn't say this there's not really any brain folds anywhere like you you think you'd be looking at a giant brain or something not really. maybe why not we had a giant heart they're surprised that they teleported here would you enter a teleporter not knowing where you're going one that was set up by your arch nemesis but i have determination nate i'm a protagonist in a jrpg yeah but like what if you just put that a mile in the air <laughs> And you drop to your death. Above a hard surface? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Fiora will probably save me. As I predicted, Prison Island is the cockpit of the Gundam. I think I said that like six months ago. Right, right. So if you remember the first time we were racing around Prison Island for the showdown with Arglath, the giant that we were calling Zanza for half the game, there were these teleporters that ported you all, that could port you around to, well, I guess wherever, but we didn't really know. Those teleporters were turned off. They're on now. And there's other sorts of monsters here. There are nebulas. There are flying manta rays, not telethias, like these other sort of creatures. Um, There are other creatures too that that we're going to get into once we get deeper. In. Anyways, we have access to those teleporters now, and we get into these grandiose rooms. Like when we first were at Prison Island, it was this hellish landscape, grim and desolate. But now we access places like the banquet hall, the arena, the throne room. Nate, this isn't Prison Island. This is Palace Island. This is like a palace for giants. Yeah, this is Dracula's castle, basically. 
everything like the tables, the chairs, everything's oversized. So you can you can understand that it's uh, giants that lived here. And it's all like a completely unique architecture that we really haven't seen much of anywhere else in the world. So it begs the question, is this the only place that giants lived? Also, there are no other giants here, just monsters. We know that Dixon is a giant. We know that Argolis was a giant, but we have this lore that we got in Tefra Cave that all the giants were killed by spiders. Where are the spiders? How did the spiders get to this place? Did all the giants leave their domain to go fight spiders and died in the, the spider cave? I'm confused. I know that the lore is telling us that all the giants died out, but we're marching through this giant's palace dungeon at the end of the game here, and I feel like it's a damn shame that there aren't other giant mobs to be uh, killing here. Now, there are giant things that we're fighting, but they are not themselves big, purple, naked, bearded dudes. As we pass through these areas, we run into Torrid Agashus, which are giant stork demons colored cobalt and purple, which is consistent with a giant color scheme. So I find that pretty interesting because, well, we know what the color of giants are, but some of the monsters here reflect that sort of skin coloration. We also run into obarts, which are these manticore-type monsters. Manticores are a mythological creature that are lion demons with wings. I also have the word Baphomet in my head when I look at these things. Baphomet. That's that's a demon from a, from a catalog of demons, right? Let me look it up right now. Baphomet. I don't know my demonology. Baphomet is a deity allegedly worshipped by the Knights Templar that subsequently became incorporated into various occult and Western esoteric traditions. Hold up. The Knights Templar worshipped a demon? Oh, yeah. What? Yeah. The I thought they were like crusaders for Jesus Christ. That's their cover, dude. That's their cover? Are you yeah. serious right now? Well, so it's an image of like a, got a goat head. It's got bird wings. It's got a like pentagram on its forehead. Classic. And then goat hooves, and then a, a human body, and it appears to have female breasts, of course. Wow. Okay. So Final Fantasy Tactics is real. Fucking perfect. Yeah, and in that dining hall, I mean, we're over-leveled at this point, so... Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, we're kind of destroying everything. I have a party of Shulk, Fiora, and Dunbin. They felt like the most appropriate to kind of do the final raid. I just pulled, like, ten enemies from the dining hall. It did a chain attack for 280,000 damage and everything just disintegrated. So, yikes. We're a little OP. Yeah, we're feeling a little OP. We complained about that last episode. We were compelled by the game to over level, and here we are, just crushing lion monsters, lion demons. We eventually arrive at a teleporter that takes us to the arena. Dixon is hanging out here in human form, relaxing real cool. He can't wait to fight us. He's he's really excited to fight us, but and this would be a great opportunity to fight us, but he sends yet another monster after us to fight on his behalf. What took you so long? Are you even trying to fight? I'm not convinced that Dixon's enthusiastic about fighting us because he's just constantly shoving other creatures at us. Yeah, even his friends, Lorithia. He's like, yeah, I'll, w I'll watch her die. Oh, yeah, yeah. But he complains. He asks us, what took you so long? And I'm like, bro, 25 levels of grinding and dozens of side quests and hidden dialogue options running up and down a tree to spam green dots on my map in the hopes that they will progress their dialogue. That's what took me so long, buddy. Hold your horses, dude. Yeah, he yells, buck up your ideas. Things are gonna get a lot worse if you don't buck up your ideas. Yeah, so we get a call back to that. And he's and he's more um this uh evil-like in his tone. Where's this phrase from? The original phrase? Yeah, like, it's gotta be a reference to something. It sounds so awkward. According to a brief Google search, the origin of buck up dates back to the 1800s. Well, buck is, of course, another word for a male deer, but to buck up means to dress smartly. So if you're not bucking up your ideas, your ideas aren't properly dressed up. You haven't scrutinized the details. You haven't thought it out properly. It's not ready for a black tie cocktail hour, let's say. Buck up your ideas. Buck up your ideas. So he sends this boss after us. It's a manticore monster, an obelis obart. It's a level 75 type, and I shit on it. Yeah. It's like a gauntlet of enemies that we have to traverse around this maze of battle arenas to 
get back to kind of the other side of the dining room. When the battle ends, we have access to the second sanctum. It's a great gothic hall adorned with an enormous giant horned skulls. What creature does this skull belong to? Is it a dragon's skull? Yeah, there's a giant locked door in the cathedral and it gives us a quest to get a dragon eye to unlock the door. And people are questioning like, hey, what's behind this door? How does it work? And Shulk says, doesn't like pay to discuss it or think about it. Let's just go find the item to jam in here. And that's a that's a video game dialogue if there ever was one. Moron video game dialogue when we walk into this cathedral. Melia goes, it looks like a cathedral. There's an altar over there. Nowhere on Bionis is there a cathedral. Even the Bionite Order, the giant building where they supposedly worship the Bionis. There's nothing cathedral-esque there. Yeah, before we get there, we teleport around the zone. The empty throne is a teleport point. Bamoth pit with a master obart down there. In a heart-to-heart, -heart, there's in a heart-to-heart -heart in this zone, Melia tells Sharla she's going to give up on pursuing her affection for Shulk. It's not even worth telling Shulk about it right now. Go ahead, all yours, Bay. Okay, so you did get that heart-to-heart -heart then. I think we, we talked about you not having that one done. Oh, maybe I didn't think it was at the... It was in prison, Palace Island. Yeah, because we, we had mentioned last episode that I had done all of them and you have you had yet to have done all of them. I, it remains that I didn't do all of them, but I did do this one. It's interesting to me that other characters, their heart-to-hearts are basically pointless. But <laughs> again, we talked about this a little bit, but I'll reiterate it here. Melia's entire art is hidden behind her heart-to-hearts. I'll kind of encapsulate it here quickly. Her whole infatuation with Shulk that she was developing over multiple chapters that we were discussing was due to the fact that she thought he was the one that went to rescue her at the Hyantia trial, right? And in a heart-to-heart -heart with Ryan, he says, Shulk didn't do that. That was Dunbin and I that fought to go save you. And she says, really? Oh my gosh. And she's like, I don't want to talk anymore. I have a lot to think about. And then you get to this point where she says, you know, hey, my feelings have, you know, kind of don't matter. I'm moving on. It's not that big of a deal. It's like her character progression is all in the heart to hearts and not in the actual like meat of the story. And that's really weird to me. Did you see the other one where she talked to Ryan in uh, Alchemoth? Maybe. I don't remember. Okay. Yeah, that was that was huge to me because I was like, oh, wait, a heart to heart that like actually moved a ball down the field. What the fuck? <laughs> I, I was so like numbed to them just being like, believe in yourself. We had a good time. <laughs> I like eating fish. And, and that's like as deep as they got. So uh, I guess we have to we have to kill a dragon. We've got to kill a dragon. To access this final room, we have to summon a dragon by ringing the bell tower at the top of Palace Island's highest tower. It's called Dragon King Alcar. It's a level 79, if I recall properly. And there were dragon skulls here. This this boss fight isn't very consequential to me. I couldn't tell you anything about it, but there's another dragon. We're running into more and more dragons in the end game here. And, and I have to ask, like, is there like mythological precedent in on earth, like in our reality where like dragons and giants are, they have a sort of shared myth mythology together. Blades Edge Mountains in Burning Crusade of World of Warcraft. There was a lot of er, infighting between dragons and Grons. Grons are a giant monster. Um, I did a little research about this. Like, where's the history here? And I don't know that there's a anthropological logical precedent but there is a precedent in dungeons and dragons particularly forgotten realms did you know that i don't know my dungeons and dragons all that well what i will say is that biblically there's like the slightest representation of both dragons and giants and then in the wider like middle eastern hebrew lore there's a lot more about like essentially giant beings who breathe fire and then giant people who occupied essentially the mediterranean or the, maybe the Mesopotamia areas, mm. the river, that eventually died out. Fascinating. Probably in a great flood. That's all, like, not just quarantined to, like, the Bible lore. That's throughout the entire region. You can find cultures that have that, like, shared history to them. Mm. So I, I could dial into that a little bit. Or I could just say, like, in this last chapter of the game, we're ascending a castle to a bell tower, ringing a bell that summons a dragon to a cathedral at some point here i'm wondering is someone gonna drink a potion is this an rpg <laughs> yeah we're getting there or uh or a castlevania level so uh yeah we i i didn't he wasn't a consequential fight to me either 
Mm-hmm. Dunbin says that he doesn't have time for a small fry when this giant fucking dragon is in front of him. <laughs> and Fiora says, this will be easy. And it was. So we can't really talk about if this was a compelling fight or not because we kind of broke the game already. Uh, so it is what it is. My question is, you have a set of keys to open up the door to your house, right? And that's a reusable key. Did the giants 3D print a dragon every time they needed to open that door? (laughs) Knowing what we know about Zanza and Eternal Recurrence, you might say that every time he destroys the universe, he does recreate another Dragon King Alcar, another another Dragon King Alki. That's another thing is, I don't know that Zanza's actually ever successfully done a reset. I think he claimed to do that in his great big uh, speech when he first uh, burst out. He says uh, he started his whole thing. He made everybody. Then he got wounded by Maynith. He hung out inside Arglas and he waited a while for Shulk to be born Mm -hmm. and have a new body. There's no point in there where he's like, yeah, I've done like 12 resets. And this was the one where it all went wrong. So Xanza, not like for all of his talk, he's actually pretty terrible at following through on his uh, assertions. But he's the god of fate. Whatever he does or doesn't follow through is how it was supposed to be in the first place. What a nice... Man, I wish I could live in that reality. Um, Defeating Dragon King Alcar earns us a Dragon's Eye, which is our key to the final encounter. Putting it in its setting summons a twisted column of gothic metal that comes crashing down out of the ceiling and over one of those green teleporters. When you walk up to it, this is the point of no return conversation. It's Dunbin that hosts it. And it's funny to me that it's why we need to have like a character speak this at all. I mean, most of the time you might just have like a prompt that says that this is the point of no return, but Dunbin happens to know that this is the point of no return and is sharing this with Shulk. Okay, that's fine. Yeah. And that to me was just a uh, sign to screw around for another 20 hours. Right, yes. Right. We both didn't go in once we first get there. We turned around. But fast forward and we are back and we are ready to get our dicks on. Dicks on with dicks on. Um, here we are at the Gondori Cathedral. Oh, hold on here. Nope. There's a cutscene. Oh, yes. The Colony 6 cutscene. We cut back to Colony 6 being besieged by Telethi again. And I just have to say, I've obliterated these things. And I just have to wonder, is Bionis creating more on the fly? Because I've killed more Errol Telethia than the entire population of the High Antia race at this point. So I don't know where they're coming from, but I decimated Alchemoth top to bottom several times over in my grinding journey but uh they're here and so juju and authoron are gunning it out Patharon, we can't hold out any longer stop complaining we're not the only ones fighting believe in shulk and the others we will defend this place until they get back i wonder if they're like reliving a little deja vu from the last time colony six was obliterated by mechon certainly and speaking of which we put all of these resources into rebuilding colony six and it turns out that the fallen arm is probably the best place to legit live on because Bionis didn't attack it at all and it's outside of his body. I kind of feel like we put all this effort into Colony 6 and it's the one thing he wants to wipe off the face of his body, I guess. You guys should have moved to Fallen Arm. There's no problems there, really. But just as it seems like they're about to be overrun, a faced Mechon comes to help. A Zord-like. They mentioned that they used to be Homs anyway and now that they've kind of been freed from Egil's mind control, they have the desire to fight to defend Colony 6. You know, honestly, I kind of really love that development. It genuinely surprised me and it feels like an actual real progression and motivation for what would you do with all of these converted former Homs and robot bodies? once the the brainwashing is gone. What would they do with their lives? And I feel like they would have some connection and kinship to who they were before, and that would motivate them to fight on. Yeah, you're absolutely right. They carry on fighting as we cut back to Palace Island. Back here, we ascend the final staircase of Black Volcanic Rock and unlock the prison terrace waypoint, but we are past the final point of no return. Perhaps it's just good to know what this particular place is called. The only time the teleporters in Prison Isle work 
are when you go to Prison Isle via the teleporter in the heart. You cannot straight up like jump between here and, well, you can leave, but you can't come back via a teleporter. You mm. have to start Prison Isle over. For this to be a location on the map after the point of no return is like a double whammy of like, like you said, why is this even being outlined for us as a waypoint? It's cool out here. There's a shining yellow ball of light that may or may not be the sun. I guess we're inside the Bionis head, so perhaps it's brain, the control center. Whatever it is, it's just sci-fi coolness. A shining yellow ball of light radiating clouds of red energy from atop the tallest spire. Dixon is here, alone, resting against a rocky wall. He's waiting to fight us. He says something to the effect of shut up and let me kill you. Will you just shut up and let me kill you? And, well, we'll have none of that, but he monologues uh, a bit. He says he's been working with Zanza since the beginning and raised you purely so he can live on, he being Zanza. In this moment, he looks like he's going to take off his bandana and reveal something. I don't know, a giant's rune or some shit. He's literally just touching the back of his head while he's talking, and I feel juked. Yeah, we talked about that. There was no great bandana reveal from Dixon. No! We thought that there was going to be like a reveal of a, a mech on eye or something back in the day, like when we didn't know shit about Dixon. Of all the theories to fall flat on her face. Yeah. Yeah. He again, like like in the arena, he again says, kept me waiting a while, Shulk. And now I just think he's actually responding to my playtime. Like some kind of psycho mantis moment where he's reading my memory card. He's sitting there like, you went side questing again, didn't you? You like Castlevania, don't you? So, you like building colony six. So, you like Suikoden. Mmm, you certainly spend a lot of time talking to no pot. Hmm, you have not said often. You are somewhat reckless. You still haven't beaten Triangle Strategy? You enjoy role-playing games. <laughs> Yeah, so he's literally he he's got a scratchy head, and that is the end of the bandana theory crafting. Oh my goodness! Okay, Shulk turns the tables on this comment. The comment being, you know, he raised you just to be, you know, like a servant of Zanza or a vessel of Zanza. Excuse me. And Shulk says, "Thank you for granting me such power. It is with your thanks that I can do this." And uh, well, Dixon's had enough of that and he glows purple, and he turns into his giant form. We get to see another giant, not Arglis. It's like a massive, grotesque version of himself because, like, his giant form is a kind of pukey gray-brown color covered in violet tattoos. But is he mutating, or has he modified himself with, like, telethia flesh? Because he's got wing-like things on his back. But they look more like telethia flesh or telethia wings, kind of, in how they have that same, like, reflective shimmer to them. I don't know. Did you get that feeling from his appearance? I wondered what those wings were, because they're not like wing wings. They're like these fleshy, membrane-y sort of back appendages. I don't know. And it didn't make the connection that they might be telethia uh, organs, but that's a pretty good theory. I dig that. Yeah. He's huge. He's maybe 20 feet tall. Ashen skin, not very purple like Arglis was. The purple tribal tattoos that look like thunderbolts or tree roots, I don't know, across his body. Matching Dixon style mustache. Yeah, I was going to say the mustache is intact, so he has an attention to detail to know when I transfer form i gotta preserve the mustache definitely hanging on his chest is that same pendant that he wears throughout the game a silver circle with an aquamarine center he's shirtless now but wears a kilt of ragged purple cloth we fight him it's boss battle time he's listed as disciple dixon so that absolutely confirms that role of larithia being one of the three trinity members right? Yeah, I think so now. So we talked about that a little vaguely before. Like, we didn't know a definitive answer, but we were taking that shard in the dark. But now that he's listed as Disciple Dixon, it's pretty clear. Mm -hmm. He fights with his fists until we get him to about three quarters health when he summons a hammer and smashes our party, which leaves us all prone on the ground. Just long enough to have a cutscene. Finally, he speaks in his scary giant's voice. He says, this is getting boring. You worms are no match for me. This is getting boring. You worms are no match for me! And then charges at us with a new wicked black sword. Fiora dives in to block the attack which Dixon attributes to inheriting Maynath's power, but she cracks him and says she's inherited her memories. And you know what? Dixon shares my criticism of this anime trope and says, what does it matter? Memories can't kill anyone? I don't know. Raw determination can kill. We've talked about it a few times and even harkened back to like Xenogears when feelings trump science. Yes. Feelings trump reality. <laughs> like. 
that's a very anime trope is you just feel really hard. That's where your power comes from. Your asks, Dixon, why are you fighting? You're helping Zanza create a world where nothing exists. What do you get out of it? Zanza says, only those with power have the right to decide such things. Such things equals what? So, what do you mean? Have the right to decide whether everything should exist or not? This dude's a fucking, like, it's so weird because this, this conversation we're going to have with Dixon in his giant form, I feel like it undermines his character because he's been this kind of independent powerful but but has his own aims and then once the big turn happens in the mechanist core and he shoots shulk and we have the big reveal that he's actually um a baddie his motivations shift from this or excuse me his character shifts from this independent you know shadowy kind of i do things on my own terms sort of guy to i completely capitulate everything i do for my master and just feels weird in my mouth or, or in my or I don't know wherever to hear him like just express all this zealotry rather than this um liber I don't know libertarian uh, uh, attitude. He's really himself to be just more subservient than I expected him to be in the end game. Zanza just tells me where to fight and I fight, and that's how I like it. Yeah, and he says that he was made to fight, and that's his only purpose, and. Like, that's all he does. But it's like, I don't know, man. You did okay as, like, a pseudo-dad for a while. You were a good friend to some warriors. You made some badass gear. Tossed back some drinks. And it's like, how do you not realize you have all of these layers to yourself and you're so hyper-focused on, like, I was born to do this. It's almost like he was infected with the philosophy of Zanza, even if you have all of these other qualities about yourself. You can't see it or understand it while you're stuck in dogma. That rings true in real life for a lot of people as well. They spend so much time inside of the, the system and the dogma that they were bred and like trained to be in that they can't see all of these other things they have going for themselves, right? Mm -hmm. We trade verbal lashes and then Dixon summons a stone hand cannon and fires purple energy blasts at Fiora. She blocks them all, but it knocks her ass. Um, Dixon goes in to execute Fiora with his sword, and now Shulk blocks it with the swing. And at this point, all of the characters are, like, having these heroic moments where they get to demonstrate their battle prowess and say something nasty at the villain, kind of one after another after another in this very unrealistic, very composed sequences of, of quotes. And I'm not going to give you the play-by-play -play, but one of the things that i had to laugh about was when dixon goes into execute shulk melia shoots golden energy energy blasts at him and then chastises fiora for not defending shulk to the degree her inherent love for him requires uh, nate the bechtel test has grown legs and is running amok stand up fiora did you not say that you wanted to be with shulk do not throw your life away for this scoundrel she's right you have to take what you want there's no point in dying! <laughs> Indeed. Yeah, it's like we talked about earlier. Melia, outside of her just core Melia moments, he exists just as a Shulk accessory. Like in the main storyline, they kind of like wrote her off a cliff into just, <laughs> she's there to reinforce Shulk and that's it. Once this hyper dramatic nonsense comes to an end, Dixon turns around and sees Shulk and Fiora slow walking towards him. And I don't know why. It's just dramatic. It's just it's just cool. But we just we're rapidly shifting from one category of of um, melodrama to an, to another. Like this is the boss before the final boss. And I don't know why we're doing a, a Quentin Tarantino Reservoir Dogs slow walk towards the boss, like shoulder to shoulder. But we're doing it right now. And uh, I don't know what Dixon sees in this moment, but he hollers, No, it can't be! And we go straight into phase two. I bash him. <laughs> and I bash him. I bash it. I bash it. I bash him. So I bash it. When I bash it enough, the hyenas go quiet. That's all I can say. Like, we, we would love to give a great commentary on these boss fights and the mechanics and everything. But again... We broke the game. Uh-huh. I do have one thing I can say about phase two. Autoing him gives my party paralysis, but it doesn't matter because I'm 15 levels above him. Pretty lame. So do you have to break them out or they break themselves out? I think I just brute force his health bar down over time. Yeah, that's the same. I don't know that anything happened. He just died. Uh-huh. All I can say after that fight is LOL. Dixon transforms back into a Grateful Dead fan. <laughs> and he says, he just wanted the power of a god, but it isn't worth dying over. 
as he's got a giant gash on his chest from Shulk's Monado wannabe. I'm done. I'm going home. I just wanted the power of a god. This martyr stuff's not for me. Go! I ain't gonna risk my life to stop ya. He just sulks off into a corner and smokes a cigar and dies of lung cancer. And we decide not to finish him off, which I think is strange because we're about to, uh, you know, like the world is in the balance and you should really, you know, like tighten up any loose screws you possibly can to optimize your performance in the battle in which the world hangs in the balance. But we let the villain second in command go. I don't think we know that Dixon is mortally wounded in this moment because he's doing his cool guy thing. Maybe Shulk does because he's like half god right now, but we don't finish him off. He passes away anyways. And he's got these quotes where he's like reflecting back on his relationship with Shulk and his contributions to the plot here. And he says things like, uh, damn, how'd that kid get so strong? I ain't gonna let you see me die. I won't give you the satisfaction of victory. See a kid. Then we flash to unconscious baby Shulk at the Monado temple. Then he says, looks like the student finally surpassed the teacher. <sighs> damn. How that kid gets so strong. I ain't gonna let you see me die. I won't give you the satisfaction of victory. See again. Looks like the student finally surpassed the teacher. The cigar drops from his mouth. Shulk grits his teeth like he's like he can feel his spirit leaving his body, or that he's kind of torn. That yes, he was a villain. Yes, he did blow him away with a rifle shot to the chest. But he was perhaps a, a mentor, a father figure, someone who shared in his engineering interests uh, when he was younger. And um, so Shulk feels two ways about it when he passes. Yeah, you can see Shulk kind of gritting his teeth, like he feels the pain of losing a parent in a certain way but probably been feeling that pain for several moments since the reveal happened mm -hmm. what you said there about the student surpassing the teacher there's this idea within like martial arts and basically any artistic pursuits in japanese culture that like the role of the master becoming a master fulfilling your yourself as a master is to train a disciple that becomes better than and that disciple becoming better than you is not like a sign of failure or weakness as your part as the master that's a success the act of a student surpassing you still elevates you to the highest rank possible because you fulfilled your role to pass on skills to the next generation and move the ball further down the field you know and that student one day is going to want to pass on their capabilities. So their culture really pushes and celebrates that cycle of master and student, but Dixon doesn't want to be a part of the cycle. And it's interesting that he's cut off from Zanza in that he doesn't really accept Zanza's mode of resetting everything and being a part of that, that cycle. And he's cut off from Shulk in that he doesn't want to give Shulk any satisfaction from succeeding him. So he's just a man alone with bitterness dying with his cigar and that's about it i also remember in the telethia invasion scenes at the beginning of the final chapter dixon saying something like it doesn't matter to him whether shulk or zanza are in control of this universe and i wondered if there would have been a moment in this final battle in the scene that follows when dixon passes where he would have gone well shit, maybe i should have supported shulk instead of Zanza, but that that little come to Jesus moment unto himself didn't happen. And I, and I kind of wondered if we would follow up on that weird comment that he made where, yeah, I'm a villain, but I don't really care who, you know, it's irrelevant to me that my master is Zanza. I mean, it could, it, it could just as easily have been anybody else. Does this world belong to you or to Zanza? <laughs> Either way is good with me. Um, space Nate. Yeah, we're back on, uh, back in the space zone like magically just whisked away there 
Space, glorious space. Zanza is there. Angelic, runic. Angel wings, he's got both of the Monados. They look funny in his hands. They look super intricate and heavy. They're not symmetrical. Like one's got this crazy design and the other one's got this other crazy design. He's got his eyes closed. And my first thought is, I thought he didn't like space. But anyways, we flash back to the Colony 6 attack, Telethia running down Homs. Then we flash to Bionis in a position of psyching up and flashes to us floating in space, looking like we're ready to fight Zanza. He's reading the future. He swings his sword, which envelops the whole scene in a blinding light. And then the scene winks off like someone turned off a CRTV. Asks himself, why can I not see any further? There's a limitation to the things he can see. Perhaps the end is coming. I wonder if that bothers him. Then he's monologuing to himself for us, for our benefit here, and he says, now that I possess both Monados, I should be seeing all, but my vision ends here. So Dixon has passed, Lorithia too. How can this be? Are the Telethias going weak? He's got people to blame, of course. He hears Maynard's voice in his head. This world belongs to all of you. Create a world without gods. And he, he's disgusted by that thought. Nah, this world belongs to me. And we cut back to the team. Do we cut back to the team? Back on Bionis? Back in back in Palace Island, Nate? No, they are on literal Saturn. <laughs> we are in honest to God, the rings of Saturn. Like landmark, Saturn. In our solar system that we currently occupy. He might be out there right now watching us. Oh man, that's a thought. <sighs> Red energy beams are passing by us. The gang doesn't know where we are, but I do. And it really does look like Saturn. It's got that yellow-brown color. The rings are kind of tilted. And we're not like swimming in space or floating idly. We're walking in space. There are these funny geometric holograms that appear below our feet that show us that we're walking on a surface. Um, so we don't really spacewalk here. Um, we walk along that red line that's pointing us to a green sphere that's in the far distance in the direction of the planet. Um, there's asteroids passing slowly over us. And in front of us, there's a large figure glowing in the darkness. Now, I thought this was Zanza, but as I get closer, it's a hologram of Metal Face, the spirit of Mumkar. Yeah, it's interesting because this is how he's represented to us in the eternity of the universe is as a giant robot. Mm -hmm. I thought they were going to do like a Mega Man boss rush mode here where we'd have to refight every significant main boss in the game as we drudge our way towards obviously Earth. But no, he just stands there. A green light lies at the end of a pulsating red beam. Mm -hmm. And upon entering it, we teleport again. Nate, did you fight him? I didn't fight him. Did you? I did. Wait, what? He's not aggressive, but you can fight it. Nothing happens. The fight's over in 10 seconds and... I barely have any time to enjoy this all new scary danger music. N new music plays in this in this super super abbreviated fight. You could fight all of these guys if I recall properly. Damn, I didn't know that. I just walked right by. You shit on them. Yeah, we teleport again and now it's Jupiter. Same thing, but this time we're looking at Zord. And now I'm seeing this as the path of fate. We're retreading our journey. Jupiter feels really heavy. It's like above us, like looming above us as we walk it. And then also, I don't know if this happened to you, but a colossal comet throwing multicolored trails of dust behind it is also nearby. I thought that was a pretty cool touch. Yeah. And uh, Mars is next, which means, yeah, indeed, we are going to Earth, like our actual real Earth in this fantasy RPG. In that moment, I we've mentioned this a couple times, but it's giving me that feeling of illusion of Gaia where you spend you spend your whole this whole game in this like fantasy world that's loosely connected it's kind of referencing things from the real world but then you go out to space and you're just like hey this is actually legitimately earth at the end of the game mm -hmm. spoilers the planet of mars also feels really cool in this scene i feel like i want to make a comment about each of these planets here because they're huge and they're heavy and very much like other environments in this game the sense of place and the sense of scope is well astronomical in in these little sections here that we that only take a not even half a minute to cross here when we do get to mars you don't see like the entirety of the red planet it's this slim curvature of the red side of the planet and the rest is just set in black because that's just the angle of the sun a very slim crescent and it's here that we encounter a telethia hologram well, they're called spirits i guess but yeah our next destination after that is the moon earth is in the distance mecha gadult stands guard Mm -hmm. shulk says a ball of water and it occurs to me these people don't understand planets they throughout this entire trek don't know what they're looking at because their world is a titan 
and that's all they've ever known. Mm-hmm. This is their first exposure to celestial bodies. And what are we doing here? As we're crossing the solar system, we're not picking up any clues. We're still in this wonder, immersed in this strange curiosity where this where we've abandoned the fantasy world and here we are in, you know, relatively nearby. We're leaving the fiction of the world and we're starting to come into we're breaking down the fourth wall in some sort of respect here. It's it's not something I would have guessed was going to happen. I had a little mini theory here that would have been broken down by the end of our session regardless, but I was feeling in this moment like when they said a ball of water they didn't really identify any land masses on what we would know to be earth because we were just at saturn jupiter mars the moon we interpret as earth they say a ball of water well i had thought okay is this path of fate like taking us to like a revelation that the world we occupy with bionis and myconis is like what earth eventually became like completely mm. submerged in water global warming everything melted and like God or some super powerful being is like, well, I'll save a little bit of humanity by giving them a body to live on or something. I thought we were like working our way up towards that type of revelation that we've been on Earth, like literal earth the whole time and we didn't know it. Mm-hmm. That theory of mine was debunked by the end of our play session here. We hear Alvis's voice. Only Shulk can hear him. He says, I cannot wait to see what path you choose. We will talk again when you make your choice. Make your choice. In this moment, I'm thinking means kill or be killed by Zanza. That's not precisely the case, but that's what ran through my head. Zanza appears. Less heavenly this time. He's still flying, but he's clad in stony, rocky armor. He's got those two funny looking weapons. They're each giving off red and blue light. And oh shit, I recognize the helm. He's wearing an armor that looks like Bionis. He maybe he is wearing Bionis in a sort of twist of reality. Is he wearing Bionis or is he or did he make an armor set in the image of Bionis and that's where he's getting his warrior power from to prepare for this final fight? It's not entirely clear because it is a different color and there are different like design effects to it. Like Bionis has a giant ass skirt that this guy doesn't have. Right. And Bionis has like the big, uh, almost carapace that the Earth Sea lays in that he also doesn't have. So I'm going to go with, this is just like, whether it's giant Bionis or whether it's him, this is how he expresses himself as a warrior. Then also you'll notice his arm that is holding the Manith Monado has like a Mechanis type design to it whether that's intentional that he made himself a little mechanis armor to wield it or like the minato consumed and transformed his arm Mm. it's not really clear from the design it looks a little bit like it's eating him up but i wouldn't think that he would be all too thrilled about that so i think he just made himself like i'm gonna make a mechanis hand to wield this thing I didn't pick up on that detail. Nicely done. Now that we're here, we get a chance to speak with Zanza. Zanza explains he planned to use Shulk's body, but since he has made this Monado a second power of creation, he now possesses all he desires. No longer is any need for life on Bionis. It's time to hit the reset button. He forgives our betrayal, which I LOL'd at uh, in that moment because we didn't feel like we betrayed him, but he thinks so. He forgives Shulk and offers him the opportunity to become his new disciple. Of course, he's going to need a new one now knowing that Dixon is no longer on this mortal coil. Uh, accepting will grant him immortality, but Shulk cannot comply with that. Almost the entire party is something they have to say to Zanza here. Melia wants revenge for killing her brethren, but Zanza says that they should be thankful. Hyantes were given intelligence in the first place because their monster form is their true form. Dunbin scoffs and says this is the arrogance of the creator for anyone raised in a uh, judeo-christian tradition the speech all rings very true of like the story of job where job's whole life is obliterated on a whim because lucifer goes to god and says hey if you take away everything from this guy he's gonna betray you and god's like all right go for it (laughs) and job's (laughs) entire life is ruined job pissed goes to god and says hey I'm a huge fan of yours. Why did you do this to me? And God's like, I'm the creator. How do you stand before me and ask why you have things and don't have things? Shut up and live your life. It's just this whole sequence kind of reminds me of like that Job energy of humans arguing with God and God saying like, you you wouldn't even exist without me. So just stop complaining. And it's like, yeah, well, unfortunately, you gave us like emotions and wills and a desire to survive. So 
that's not going to cut it, buddy. Mm-hmm. Also, I stand corrected. As I look at the model I previously spoke about, his left foot and his left wing are also very Mechanis-esque. So it's more than just an arm. It's kind of the entire left side of his body has been mechanized. He's a cacophony of colors and textures. He's got the, the yellow light that's illuminating him from behind. He's like blue on, on his Bionis side. He's red on his Mechanis side. He's stony armored. He's a very, just a bunch of colors and paint like all spilled together. I kind of get like Transformers energy from this. You know, if you watch the Transformers live action movies where you're just looking at a giant pile of trash burned into a car and you can't really discern what's going on or what went where, that's a... It's a major design flaw of the Transformers and the Transformers movies. And I feel I'm getting a little bit of that. Like there's just too much going on. You got two crazy wacky ass swords, eight different design languages going on in your body. It's a little bit too much for me. Yeah, yeah, I get that feeling too. Rock music begins to play, heralding the end of all this talk, but there is still talking to do. Um, Zanza says mortals don't deserve independent power. That power is for gods alone. And uh, and then Maynath comes into the conversation, not literally, but we begin speaking about Maynath and says, and Zanza says, Machina also became insolent under Maynath. And so they were also kind of revolting in their own sort of job, maybe not revolting, but but complaining about their lives in the same sort of way that Zanza would say Homs and Hyantias are presently. He had a desire for friendship with Homs, but granting intelligence to the lives he's created was a bad idea. A god should not long for friendship. Zanza's lonely. It's kind of like you're when you're a parent and your kids, all they can think about is moving out and being their own person. But you as a parent, you had that kid because you wanted their companionship and you wanted to grow your family and share your joy with others and all the kid wants to do is move on do you think god is lonely it sounds like a lonely job Hmm. interesting thought experiment it's like this very video game here when we got too powerful there was no longer any friction or joy to be had from the combat system and we're left wanting for engaging experiences when you're god what's left to do i guess you just make people and fuck around with them until you get tired of your toys. Exactly. Until they start talking back. They want to build a spaceship and leave. <laughs> yeah, can't have that. And you're like, wait, wait, you're my dinner. Don't leave. You're my antibodies. Please stay. Shulk is speaking on behalf of Maynith, the spirit of Maynith, or Maynith's sort of philosophy, and says that, no, Maynith disagrees with that. You didn't want friendship. You wanted slaves. You wanted food. Uh, to which Zanza says, it was a mistake to grant free will. All life will soon be over. Telethia will exterminate all life on Bionis, and I will create a new world just as I have done many times before. Hmm. Many times before. I wonder if it was that conversation between Argus and Agil, where they talked about, like, yeah, eventually we're going to move on is that the insolence that he is uh referencing because we haven't really seen people or flashbacks or like lore in any respect of like people denying god or rebelling against god before the great battle all we heard was a flashback of them being like yeah eventually we're going to move on so that might be the offending action to god is the yeah, I don't want to be a part of this anymore. Abandoning him, making him lonely, lonelier than he already is. Mm-hmm. Strange, strange motivation that a final boss might have in a video game, that he's lonely. Although, Shulk's argument is that no, it's not lonely, you want servants, you want body parts. Exactly. Exactly. So we have a Zanza fight, and he summons two guardians that look like him in his pre-Bionis armor form, kind of like Golden Shulk Boy. I've got it written down as Golden Flying, mon- flying Monkeys. Oh, okay. That works too. I mean, this was a month ago for me, so I'm just going <laughs> off my notes. What I will say is that the song playing legitimately kicks serious ass. There's drop C guitar kind of strutting away on a, sounds like through amp recording, so it's just got that grit to it. There's like an angelic choir kind of giving a, a little bit of a dissonant chorus over the top of it. It's 100% J Rock. This is something you rarely would find outside of the the Isle of Japan when it comes to some badass epic battle music. Yeah, it is gnarly, dude. Zanza is level question mark, question mark, question mark, and his health bar is set in red, suggesting he's way too high level for us. And I burn him down hard, and it pisses him off. He transforms into, uh, well, a true form, I suppose. 
course, they're always holding back their true form. I'll say something quick. I actually spent time focusing on the ads just to see if I could witness more of this fight instead of bursting him down immediately. Sure. And uh, he tries to do like an epic cutscene attack on Fiora, and the entirety of it misses. What? Yeah. Oh no. It's like a screen stealer where he does multiple slashes or whatever, and it's just, it does nothing to her. When he transforms, he's, bear with me here, a huge biomechanical angel with one giant mechon arm and another feathery high Entia-like arm. Each Monado is grown with him in size as well. Zanza himself is inset into the top of the torso area and can move his hands freely from the frame's arms. The torso comes down to a twisting spinal column with, which branches out again into a tangle of flapping wings that look kind of like how people say biblical angels really look like. And all of his abilities do pretty much nothing to me, but have really cool names like Mechanus Buster, Bionis Buster, Titan Bazooka, and Black Hole. It's also, it's the Titan Bazooka 8. Were there other, like, seven other Titan Bazooka attacks I missed? Yeah, there were, like, degrees of attacks. I remember that too. But, uh, this is like a, it's a fitting tribute to the insane amalgamated final bosses of RPGs of yore. I left the character select window they give you open so that I can just chill and listen to the music for a little bit. Mm. This isn't quite like one winged angel level of good. It's actually compositionally pretty simple, but it's a track worth keeping in the mental banks long after I move on from this title as like a put it in a playlist for epic battle moments. All right, so the fight is interrupted mid ass kicking. Zanza asks how Shulk can see the future that Zanza himself cannot. And Shulk says, I don't know. I am passionate. It comes from the heart. He also spouts on like, it doesn't matter whether you can see the future. What matters is your ability to make a choice. And I just want to say like, uh, I've been doing a lot of seeing the future in this game. So that's a pretty bold statement to uh, for the like first half of the game to be led completely by seeing visions of the future. And then for him to say, yeah, it doesn't really matter. Just do what you want. He's like one with the Matrix now. It's not seeing the future. It's just, it's like any other thing. There's a little bit of a, like a philosophy and religion battle going on here between the two of them. It's like essentially by giving people free will, Zanza kind of made them all gods in and of themselves. Because if you look at it from the perspective of like, Zanza represents Christian Calvinist theology. Shulk is portraying Buddhism, where one is saying that God's will is all that matters and mortals must follow that path set out for them. The other is saying that by exercising free will, all have the ability to achieve enlightenment. And so it's kind of like a, a battle of the faiths here. Mainith's chest device explodes with light and so too does everyone else's weapons. What the fuck is going on? Fiora's is a red light, but everybody has blue. Do we all have Monados now? No, no. Shulk is at the nexus of all of these beams and he comes crashing down with a new sword made of shiny, icy blue crystal. It's another Monado. Zanza can't believe this shit. A third Monado has appeared. And by the way, Nate, was I right? Is Alvis a Monado, the Monado of Earth? In the moment, these are the thoughts racing through my head. Crystal and, fa and fantasy settings are is like ethereal, the fifth element, the, the divine material. We have a new one now, and it's coming from everyone's belief that they can shape their own future, manifesting into metallurgical fantasy powers. I'm not really following this. It isn't that it makes sense. It's that it feels cool and leans into the themes of the story that we've been hearing, which is very JRPG, which is very anime. Anyways, at this point, the term Monado has lost all definition and meaning for me. We had so many sessions of explaining what the Monado is, and I still have no fucking clue what a Monado is anymore. Because, like, I feel like we do a 45-minute video of people claiming they wield the Monado, they are the Monado, the Monado is just a guy. Well, now I'm wielding another Monado that was another girl, and you made a new Monado, and then in a second, Alvis is gonna say, no, I'm the Monado, and it's like, guys, stop. This word means nothing to me now. It means the sheer will of everybody made real and is also a sword. I don't even know. It's the Xenoblade. It's the third Xenoblade, not the game. The Xenonado, Mark Three. Yeah. I mean, it's cool. I'm not complaining in the slide. I'm just saying we've we've reached that 
basically that anime territory where we spent hours delivering exposition on something and I still have no clue what's going on. And I don't think I'm dumb. I think this is just very convoluted. Elvis does chime in and he says, even gods are merely beings restricted to the limited power determined by providence. So Elvis, he's giving me a little bit of a confirmation of something I've been talking about for a few episodes here. Mm-hmm. Elvis is confirming that Zanza has demigod energy. He's saying, even you have limitations and restrictions, buddy. Zanza isn't God, capital G. Because even if he has the ability to create something, what he creates is still limited by the amount of power given to him by something else. And we'll probably learn about that. In this moment, it seems like Elvis is transcending Zanza even though he's his disciple, so to speak. Elvis says, I am Monado. I was here in the beginning and will be at the end. I am Monado. I was here at the beginning and I will proclaim the end. Shulk, it is time for you to choose. Does this world belong to Zanza or does it belong to you? That is something I decided long ago. I think we're stumbling onto a universal constant where if you become a demigod, you cannot help yourself but lie and say that you are a proper god. Nobody just nobody just says they're a demigod because how would anybody know? It's just more power if they if they just think you are. It's like the Elon Musk effect of like he has pulled on certain levers of society and government subsidies and various uh, other things like his uh, father owning a diamond mine worked by slave workers in Africa. And he's pulled on all these levers and it's made him incredibly rich. And so he, from his perspective, thinks I'm doing everything right. I'm an incredible creator. Nothing I do has ever failed. I can't fail. And yet there are multiple instances of him making incredibly stupid decisions. But in our culture, in our society, There's a certain level of success where you just leave orbit, where regardless of your failures and stupid decisions, it doesn't matter because there's no mechanism for society to punish you and kick you to the curb when you become that rich. That's my little real world example of kind of what we're dealing here with Zanza. It's like, like I said before, earlier in the recording, he has yet to successfully do a reset and like actually follow through on his vision. But he thinks he didn't he's, claim. No, he said he he's done it a couple times already in the in the showdown conversation just now. Okay, I mi- I missed that. So if you uh, if you want to grab a clip, if you don't, whatever. I will then create a new world, just as I have done many times before. But hey, how do we know he's telling the truth? Yeah. This pisses off Zanza having the crystal monado. He hollers, you are mere mortals and phase three begins. I can't tell you much about the mechanics of this phase, but I can say that as we fight him, the scenery changes in our exterior from outer space to above an ocean. Now the ocean is cool and like a dull bluish green. It's not like crystal blue. It's this dull bluish green, kind of like you might see an ocean of earth sort of look like. And it's in in an unromantic, realistic sort of way. And I really, really enjoyed that. So uh, what I will say is uh, that quote for Alvis also, he says, I was here in the beginning and will be at the end. So Alvis might be referencing himself to the actual like Hebrew God here because him using that language of beginning and end mirrors biblical proclamations that God is Alpha and an Omega or A-N-Z. Holy shit, Nate, you just gave me a thought. Zanza. Zanza. Z and Z-A. Is there any like Alpha and Omega, A to Z and A again relevance here? Hmm. Also, biblically, God calls himself I am in a fashion that he is an existence that wasn't born or dies, but just is. He is the existence. God's name in Hebrew, Yahweh, spelled yud Hey vav Hey, means he brings into existence whatever exists. So uh, I, I feel like Alvis, him saying, I was here in the beginning, I will be at the end, is kind of identifying him as the actual God of this universe and kind of supplanting Zanza's claims of him being a God. Shulk forges a giant golden beam of light with his Monado 
and a symbol appears in its center. In Japanese, it is the kanji for God. Mm. This kind of elaborates on how kanji exists in this really cool space of simultaneously being communication and an art form, because this is something I don't really think we have in English. Like, how stupid would it look for a sword to have written in G-O-D in the center <laughs> uh, when you, like, activate its final power? That would... You'd read that and be like, what the fuck? But kanji, the artisticness of it, kicks ass. And I wonder, do Japanese people feel the same way when they see, like, a word artfully written? Does I'm assuming it doesn't look stupid to them because they have that delineation of, like, there's their artful language and then there's just their standard hiragana katakana characters all teammates are channeling their energy streams onto shulk's crystal sword shulk raises it high and produces a towering column of golden light today we fell a god and seize our destiny he cries out today we use our power to fell a god and then seize our destiny shulk charges zanza and slices through zanza's monados and through the center of Super Zanza himself. Zanza starts monologuing as he's dying. It's all fading. This god, born from the chaos of creation, it's vanishing. All that I am, it's fading. The memory of a god's existence, born from the chaos of creation, it is vanishing. Fade to white. Hey gang, we're taking a break here. Next episode, we will be reviewing the the epilogue, our impressions of the game, and we're going to reveal what the game will be for season two. See you then. Bye-bye.